As COVID has ravaged the globe, it's overshadowed another ongoing global story, that of migration. According to new data from the International Organization for Migration, migrants make up 3.5% of the total global population, with the top five countries of origin being India, Mexico, China, Russia, and Syria. That information and more can be found in the IOM's 2020 World Migration Report. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Marie McAuliffe. McAuliffe is the head of the Migration Research Division at IOM headquarters in Geneva and editor of IOM's flagship World Migration Report. She's an international migration specialist with more than 20 years of experience in migration as a practitioner, program manager, senior official, and researcher. McAuliffe has researched, published, and edited widely in academic and policy spheres on migration and is on the editorial boards of scientific journals International Migration and Migration Studies and is an associate editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. Marie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Rosemary, and it's a real pleasure to be able to uh, talk about migration. Um, It's um, a compelling topic. I used to work in industrial relations many years ago, and uh, if you wanted to shut down a conversation uh, with colleagues and and people you were meeting in airports and while you're traveling, you would just mention trade union regulation. But if you (laughs) want to start a conversation, you just start talking about migration because it touches everybody's lives. You know, it's it's the classic six degrees of separation. So it's it's a real honor and privilege to be talking to you today. What would you consider the headlines of the 2020 migration report? Actually, it was for the 2020 report, and of course, the next one that we're currently working on, which is the 2022 volume, it's going to be released later this year, it's going to be quite different. But for the 2020 volume, I was answering media um, inquiries and, and doing interviews, and a lot of journalists were a little bit puzzled. They're basically saying, so what the report essentially tells us is that it's business and usual, as usual, and there is no major crisis in international migration. And I would be saying, yes, that's true. The trends are kind of like on track. They are what we expect. Most people do not migrate across borders uh, during their lives. Very high proportion, uh, 96.5% stay within the country in which they're born. Um, The challenge is that displacement, especially internal displacement, but also cross-border displacement, um, takes up um, a lot of resources around the world. It is very significant from a human security perspective. And so those numbers are often the numbers that we focus on. Uh, you know, they're, they're small proportionally, but they're very significant uh, in, in terms of meaningful changes to people's lives and often profound tragedy and loss. You know, one thing that you you mentioned is, is that was different about, about these upcoming reports was that this this report is also used as a fact checking device, that it, it has a, it serves a role to kind of in reaction to some maybe misinformation or or kind of untrue stories that are being told about mig- migration. Can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, it, I mean this is a unfortunately it's it's a growing area for our work. We wish that we didn't have to be used as a fact-checking you know, resource, honestly, that there wasn't this issue with misinformation and disinformation, but it's increasingly being used as a fact-checking 
resource because a lot of the sort of the discussion in social media, um, also traditional media, but but certainly social media has amplified and intensified the problems around disinformation um, globally. Is that numbers are often a really big focus when when it comes uh, to migration and also displaced populations. So in in a number of instances for the 2020 report and also the 2018 report, the report prior, uh, the focus on migration statistics and the key kind of uh, part on data and key information has been really useful in dispelling uh, misinformation around volume and scale of migrants to say that in actual fact let's try and put this in proportion uh, you know the world migration report clearly shows us that you know this displacement event or uh, the number of and proportion of migrants in a particular country is not um, you know, huge, it's not overwhelming, we're not talking about a crisis situation, we are talking about a situation that can be managed and is being managed. Most of the time we are seeing, you know, pretty balanced reporting in different parts of the world, but of course when we're talking about interest groups and and sometimes that goes into uh, political scenarios, there can be a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there. And certainly targeting you know, uh, particular uh, ethnic minorities is, is a yeah. very considerable problem. Um, that's been amplified, I think, during COVID-19 as well, where we've had, um, you know, xenophobic racism um, ignite in different parts of the world. And again, it's completely out of kilter and a lot of it is emotional, but statistics are used as a bit of a weapon uh, uh, quite often um, in trying to uh, portray some untruths to make political points and to really um, use to be used as a power tool to try and diminish um, you know the rights of um, of people in different situations could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that are faced just gathering this data from different parts of the world i mean when you look at the impressiveness of this project and especially the interactive uh project i recommend everybody go to it because it's really cool it's very cool it's all it's awesome it's really good isn't it we actually we got a specialist to do that um and and he i think he's he's one of the i mean probably one of the world's best to to be honest because he he gets involved in terms of the editorial content and we workshop a whole range of different types of interactive components um he's not just you know a technical specialist he spends a lot of time understanding, you know, the, the underlying data, which is really, really important. Um, it's a very significant project in terms of sort of coordination and collaboration because we are using, um, as you mentioned, Richard, we're using uh, statistics from all over the world. When we use them in very different ways and we are very careful about how we portray them, there's a lot of focus on accuracy, uh, relevance and balance and, and, you know, being objective and so forth. But accuracy is probably the key thing when we're talking about statistics. So, for example, as you may know, like we're in our 70th anniversary, actually, this year, IOM, the International Organization for Migration, and we were set up as an operational agency. So after World War II, it used to be um, a committee that was um, assisting with, uh, you know, resettling displaced persons who had been affected by World War II from Europe, and it was only really focused on Europe. 
Um, we've changed over time, but we have a very strong base in terms of operational and programmatic data collection, but not necessarily global um, statistics. So what we do is we try to be very accurate in our global overview by saying, this information which looks at resettlement is programmatic data. It's not a global kind of number about you know, refugee resettlement. It is, um, it is programmatic data, but it does give you some insights, whereas then the global data that we use from a number of different UN agencies, so there's um, data in there that is global from uh, the UNHCR, from the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs, of course, the international migrant stock data, there's the international labor organization data on migrant workers, that is global. So we try to make sure that we situate it and represent it accurately so that it's used as a tool for fact checking or for teaching or for officials when they're doing briefings and so forth of their um, you know, ministers and senior officials and it's, and it's accurate and correct. But is it, it is an enormous challenge and it's an enormous challenge too because migration, like as a demographer, I mean, you know, births and deaths are pretty straightforward compared to events related to migration because you've got a whole range of movements occurring mm-hmm. um, that are occurring in real time. And there is there are very few countries, I think my own country, um, Australia, is one of the few countries that can genuinely collect cross-border movements and that's got a lot to do with its geography uh, to be honest because its border is 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 um, you know it's an island it's uh, isolated and it has very specific sort of arrangements around cross-border movements but most countries actually they don't know mm-hmm. they can't tell you at any particular point in time um, how many international migrants or travelers or visitors actually are in their countries which does frighten some people, but that's just, you know, the honest truth. I, I thought it was interesting earlier when you, when you were talking about displaced people versus mi- migrants. And I, I almost think of it that, you know, one thing that, that came to mind for me is is the idea of there's, there's both voluntary and involuntary migration. And that's a, that's a, it's a really interesting question about kind of the, you know, when I think about displaced, that sounds an involuntary forced move versus the the idea of migration for other reasons. I, I know that some of the things that you mentioned is that, that that the report addresses issues of patterns and processes and trends. So now I'm going to ask a multi-part question. Of course, this is the, this is the worst possible. I mean, I'm channeling you, Richard. This is standard John <laughs> no. practice. No, no, I'm, I'm channeling Richard. He's the one. Yeah, that and then he, he blames me. <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, it's also standard for Richard and I to blame each other. Uh, um, so, <laughs> so the question is, as I think about this, what are... Can you talk a little bit about some of the causes or, or processes that lead to migration mm-hmm. and then follow that up with kind of some of the patterns and trends that may have been observed? Definitely. Um, we tend to talk, I mean, there's uh, the discussion around sort of drivers. There's a whole body of, you know, longstanding research in regards to the gravity model, the push and pull, Ravenstein, 1886 and 1887, um, moving into kind of the enabling factors because there's much greater recognition of, um, you know, self-agency of migrants, Mm -hmm. that they're not just pushed and they're not just pulled, but they actually have a lot of ability to make decisions and act on those decisions in different situations. So we've kind of, there has been a lot of migration theory developed um, over many years 
So we do tend to talk um, now also because it's not necessarily about sort of problematizing, if I can use that, about migration as a problem, that it is just, you know, a social and economic phenomenon, but it's not necessarily a problem. So we tend to talk more these days about drivers and there's much greater recognition of um, you know the the multiple motivations and multiple factors involved underpinning migration, as well as moving more and more away from the kind of binary construct around forced um, and voluntary migration or involuntary and voluntary migration. So there's probably for about the last sort of twenty years. Um, there's been much more of a discussion around the spectrum in regards to agency. Um, my own actual, my, my doctoral research is, is, is on this particular topic and it's, um, it was focusing on uh, self-agency of a group of refugees, uh, Hazaras from uh, mm. Afghanistan, yeah. Pakistan and Iran yeah. traveling down to Australia, yeah. refugee refugees. I mean, a very high finally determined grant rate under the Refugee Convention of between 96 and 100% across five program years. So that's about as high as you can get. Um, real genuine refugees and they would engage in major self-agency uh, extraordinary resilience to be able to get to Australia um, by boat, sometimes traveling through up to seven transit countries, um, many of them um, traveling by themselves or in groups um, with other young Hazara males. Um, enormous amounts of resilience, very dangerous journeys at times, you know, extremely unsafe, and yet they're refugees. Mm. So they, these are not people who have been displaced, these are people who have engaged in major migration journeys. So there's there's a lot more recognition. I think a very sort of crisp and clear example of that these days is just is Venezuela. I mean if you if you look at Venezuela and the displacement from Venezuela, um, we talk about uh, Venezuelans who have been displaced not necessarily as refugees. Some of them would meet the grounds under the Refugee Convention, the 1951 Refugee Convention. But um, even UNHCR talks about, you know, Venezuelans as a separate category because they recognise that there are a number of different factors that relate to economic insecurity, for example, um, uh, not necessarily persecution and the other categories that are covered by uh, the Refugee Convention. And also there's, uh, you know, a, a very heightened awareness. There has been a lot of work over the last couple of decades, but probably now more than ever before, a heightened awareness around environmental and climate change related displacement, which again does not meet the grounds of the Refugee Convention, but that doesn't mean that people are needing to move because their options around staying are diminished all the time. I mean, recently we've kind of published, in the last couple of years, we have published some really interesting papers um, under our migration research series, really looking at decision-making of uh, you know, classic sort of refugees, you know, Syrians, for example, they do have to make decisions. It's what can trigger them to move, um, how they uh, consider a whole range of different kind of factors, not just the security, but also, you know, education, health services, um, family reunion, a whole range of different factors when they're deciding how to move, where to move, when to go, basically. 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Marie McAuliffe, the head of the Migration Research Division at the International Organization for Migration and editor of IOM's flagship World Migration Report. Marie, when I was looking at the 2020 report and the interactive visualizations, um, which, as Richard mentioned, are really, really lovely, and I just think are really helpful to help understand this, there was a section that talks about migration corridors, and I was wondering if you could explain what a migration corridor is and maybe how how you've seen them change a bit as as you've been involved in this work yeah the migration corridors one was it it was um a component that we added to the 2018 volume it's not one that is is typically kind of constructed in in migration research and analysis and and statistics but it is a sort of a cumulative picture of some of the key corridors around the world and they relates to uh, what the UN describes as an international migrant, which is foreign-born. So you can be, say, included in the international migrant stock statistics and be a refugee. You might have been displaced across a border, you might have been recognised as a refugee and then you settle, for example. Um, It doesn't go into policy category. It doesn't go into the type of migrant, whether you're a student, whether you're um, a migrant worker, whether you're um, reuniting with your family under a family reunion program or anything like that. It's really just about foreign born and it is cumulative. So what we can see is that over time, based on the UN DESA, Um, international migrant stock data, we can see where those really big corridors exist. Um, So the the largest one, in fact, we've just pulled the data for the next volume uh, and we were looking at it today with my team. The biggest corridor by far is um, Mexico to the United States and uh, and that's globally. So what we've done in the 2020 volume is, um, and you learn from your mistakes, to be honest, because in the regional chapter, we've done those migration corridors for all of the six UN regions, but so many times I've wanted to actually look at it globally and we didn't produce it. We didn't put it into the global chapter. So this time we're fixing that so that we can actually use it in our work and and um, and use it in our you know presentations and our discussions and so forth. But it was very interesting to see how those corridors have changed. And unfortunately, one of the really big uh, corridors that's in the top 20, it's right up the top actually, is Syria to Turkey. Um, Now I've been working on migration for so long that I recall, you know, writing a whole lot of briefings uh, when I was working in government, in the Australian government on Syria as the third largest host country of refugees in the world. It used to host uh, mainly mainly Iraqis, post-war so they would be uh the third or you know you'd be doing briefings you know every a few months every quarter and so forth and it would always be syria would be number three syria is now number one uh origin country of refugees of course Uh, but that corridor is so significant it's in the top 20 of all global corridors for 2020 for the current data and that is syria to turkey it's a huge huge uh corridor that has opened up And it's one that only very few um, migration specialists and academics at the time, at the beginning of the the Syrian conflict, saw, uh, you know, the potential for very significant displacement. Um, And most didn't, but um, but a couple who I work with, um, they did actually pick it and see that this was going to be a a particularly bad um, displacement sort of scenario and, and ongoing conflict. So that, that's kind of like the sad side of it. And that is a very significant change in what 
otherwise are quite long-term trends and long-term patterns um, of migration around the world. Hey, could you talk a little about in the report, this is probably on the good side of the report, you talked about ignoring migrant contributions and this topic of remittances. That's really fascinating to me. I didn't know anything about this. And that data is really interesting. And how do you even get that data? Could you talk a little bit about remittances? Yeah, so remittances are collected by the um, International Monetary Fund. That's where the kind of the, the primary data set is. There are two types of international remittances. They're reported in as part of balance of payments from governments, from central banks. And there are two types of remittances, uh, international remittances. There are uh, like salaries and payments that are made, and then there are personal remittances. So quite often uh, when we're talking about remittances in a development context, uh, international development context, the narrative is that a migrant worker uh, from a developing country will go and work in a developed country, you know, a wealthy industrialised country, and send back remittances to family members who will be able to, um, you know, pay for food, for shelter. I mean, that's a particular kind of issue in, in certain parts of the world like Central Asia, you know, Tajikistan and other countries are very reliant on international remittances for poverty alleviation, so for basic needs. Um, but also they support education, education of children as well as um, broader family members and so forth. But then there's, there's kind of like other aspects to it as well. Um, and this is something that we pull out of the report, a kind of a, a did you know type of um, uh, little snapshot where, you know, did you know that Switzerland um, is, uh, is one of the largest, um, uh, one of the largest uh, countries in terms of receiving international remittances, um, as well as, you know, sending international remittances. And Germany also receives enormous amounts of remittances and so forth. It's, 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 it's really interesting because it's cross-border workers uh, it's people who are actually uh, yeah. in Europe and yeah. they're working in one country and living in another and so forth and, and so on. Um, Luxembourg is, by share of GDP, one of the largest in terms of outflows of remittances uh, yeah. in terms of GDP. Um, because it's it's not just uh, developing and developed contexts, uh-huh. it's uh, much more sort of broadly. So I think it, for the last report, I think France was number six, from mainly from Switzerland. So France was the number six country of international remittances inflow, so receiving international remittances, and Germany was number nine. And, and again, that's because of Switzerland. So the money out of uh, Switzerland for salaries goes into French bank accounts of residents in France. Um, I'm sitting here in Geneva, and, you know, like the hospital system, the medical system is, you know, people who reside in France. Uh, basically so and the same in in zurich zurich it's mainly people who live in uh, germany um, so they're cross-border workers now COVID has really impacted that um, very significantly and the world bank who does a lot of work on uh, international remittances in a migration context uh, projected that there would be a 20 percent decline of international remittances in 2020 because of COVID. Now, you know, obviously related to people losing um, their jobs during COVID, so migrant workers wouldn't be able to send back money um, back home, but also um, uh, because of you know people being stranded, uh, people having to return, engage in return migration because they couldn't stay in the Gulf of various other places um, and having to return. What we have seen is we've seen something quite different. 
So we've been tracking this really closely and we've seen some of the largest monthly remittance inflows to traditional kind of receiving countries um, on record, um, especially mid-year. So sort of July, August, we saw countries posting very substantial increases in remittances. So let, let me just, just personalize this just for a second. You know, what do you, what do you like best about what you do? And, and how did you, you know, how would someone get involved if they wanted to do migration research? I, I really enjoy kind of the analytical aspect, working with a really strong team and, and also collaborating with researchers uh, from all over the world. So for one of the chapters, I'm working with a, one researcher in the US, one in China, and one in Kenya. And we're collaborating on, you know, a thematic chapter which is intensely interesting and really challenges some of the orthodoxy uh, around some of the narratives that we that we hear around migration by looking at the data. It's, this is a data chapter, looking at the analysis of what the data is telling us and being open to that. Whereas a lot of the times in, in migration research, um, there are particular constructs and if you are trying to do something that is a little bit unorthodox, like looking at migration journeys of refugee refugees, like convention refugees, People are, feel a bit confronted by, you know, what you're trying to do um, and what you're trying to really explore and understand, basically. To, to look at the complexities and to be open to those complexities to say, well, actually, it's not as simple um, as we are told or it's not as simple as some people may sort of portray. You know, they, these people, Hazaras, um, are not fleeing for their lives. They are engaging in major, major um, migration journeys that, you know, they lose their lives during. Many have lost their lives. So that, that aspect I find, you know, really fascinating and very compelling. And it's also the things that bring us together to make us realise that, you know, I might be an Australian, but I've got so much in common with the, you know, the migration experiences and journeys and what people having to do in Pakistan, you know, in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Latin America. So one of the real challenges and one of the things that I really like about working um, in the UN and for IOM is that you can rise above that, you know, singularity around national interest and you can look at the broad, you know, mutual interest on a very large scale. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Marie, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you very much indeed, uh, Rosemary. I've really enjoyed it. And to John and Richard, thanks so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to have Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.